Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. Pastor Cameron mentioned uh, my message this morning follows the theme of Happy Family, which is our November series. And uh, a lot of the messages in this series are going to focus on uh, what does it mean to strengthen the relationship you have with your uh, earthly family, your natural family, which biological family, whatever term you want to use. And um, that's important. It's important that we um, understand how to relate to each other, how to love each other, how to get along with each other. Uh, that's really important. These are the people in our lives that are closest to us. They, you know, live with us. They, um, you know, we, sh- we call it, we share the same blood, right? We kind of have this affinity that's deeper than any other relationship. And that's a really important emphasis of this month. And I, I want to mention today and really focus on the idea that we're part of another family. We're part of the family of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what does it mean to be in the family of God? And one of the things that is really comes across in scripture, really all the way through the Bible, and I don't know if you've thought about this before, but the idea of the Bible is really the story of a family. Yeah. It's really a family story. Uh, one of the main threads of this, the Bible that kind of goes all the way back to very, very early is a family story that focuses on the family of Abraham. And a lot of what we read in Scripture goes right back to this incident in Genesis chapter 12 where God speaks to this person, Abram, and calls him and his family to leave where they were living and say, go out on this kind of unknown epic journey. And from that one uh, couple and family, we see the tribes and the nation of Israel emerge, and we see the family story continue through. So today I want to pick one passage of Scripture, and that's going to be the main focus um, for the message this morning. And it uses, primarily uses this, this language of family. Yeah. And it's an example of the ways in which God uses the language of family to talk to us about who we are, who we are in relationship to each other, but then also who we are in relationship to God. And one of my main points today is that understanding the language of family, understanding the picture and the imagery that family invokes is one of the main ways that God talks to us in the Bible. And understanding family language and family relationships is one of the ways that we best get to know God. And so we're going to see that today in the passage that we read. So the passage this morning is from one of Paul's letters from Galatians. And so I'm just going to read this passage. You can follow along. And then uh, I'll read all the way through it. And then we'll go back through it section by section as Paul packs in a lot of detail into these verses. So before, this is reading from Galatians chapter 3. This is towards the end of Galatians 3, and then we're going to go over into the first part of Galatians 4. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. Going into chapter 4, verse 1, 
What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, even though he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. What an amazing passage of scripture. There's a lot contained in here. And so we're going to go back over and highlight a few things from these verses that relate to how we understand ourselves, how we understand ourselves in relation to other people, and how we understand our relationship with God. So going back up to this first part, verses 22, or 23 to 25, what is Paul talking about here? Well, Paul is contrasting two different images. So Paul's writing to the Galatians, and the church in Galatia had an interesting background. They came from a Jewish background, and so they would have lived their lives before they became Christians, living their lives according to the law of Moses that we see in the Old Testament. Now, what do you remember about the law of Moses? The law of Moses has a lot of statements that say something along the lines of, do this, don't do this, go here, go there, don't touch this, don't mix these two things together. It's a lot of very fixed direction, right? It's a very prescribed, very precise way to live your life. So these um, Galatian the Jews, they become Christians, and they're trying to figure out, now that we are Christians, how much of this law-keeping, how much of this following the law do we need to hold on to? Because they want to know, what does it take to be righteous before God? Is it following the law that makes us righteous? Or is it faith in Jesus Christ that makes us righteous? They've heard these two different ideas. And Paul is writing to them and saying, I've actually personally gone through this process myself. Yeah. I used to be a Jew. And in fact, if you read early in Galatians, he talks about what an amazing Jew he was. He was the best Jew that there was at that time. Yeah? He's very uh, straightforward in terms of how much he tried to keep to the law. So he says, I have experience in this area, so let me help you understand the relationship between the law and faith. And he uses a couple of different images to help the Galatians to understand that. And I think they're helpful for us today. So the first image he uses is contained in these verses where he talks about the law as a guardian. He talks about the law in a very legal sense, in a sense that's very much to do with justice. And really what he's saying here is the law kept you locked up. He said before Christ, the law kept you locked up. It set very, very firm, very fixed boundaries on where you could go, what you could do, and your freedom was really limited by the law. The law was like a prison guard that made sure that you stayed out of trouble. Well, that serves a purpose, right? The law, in a sense, kept them safe. Right? When they've tried to figure out, how do I live before God? The law offered some type of protection, in a, in a sense, but it also limited their freedom. Right. Now, all through the Old Testament, you get glimpses of the fact that people, when they lived under the law, 
had this deep sense that there was a better way to live. Right? They're under the guardianship of the law. They have this long list of things that they are supposed to do, not do. Worship like this. Don't worship like this other way. And we get a real sense in Scripture in the Old Testament where people had this glimpse of, you know what, there has to be more than this. There has to be more when it comes to our relationship with God than simply living by the law. And Paul says that that came along, that moment came along where this whole idea of a prison no longer worked. Where this whole idea of the law functioning as a prison guard was no longer appropriate and no longer accurate. And what was the change? The change was that faith came. You see that in verse 23. Now, this can also be translated from the original language to say that faithfulness came. (coughs) Specifically, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So what happens as a result of that? Well, Paul says, if you're no longer a prisoner held by the law, who's a prison guard, then we need some other frame of reference. We need some other way to think about our relationship with God. And we see this amazing contrast when we get to these next verses where Paul isn't using language that has to do with the law, the legal system, justice, prison, prison guard. What type of language does Paul use right here? It's the language of family. So Paul says, if we want to rightly understand who we are before God, we have to embrace this idea that we're in the family of God. Because he says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So Paul is not completely dismissing the law. He's saying the law had a time and it had a place and it had a certain purpose. But now that Christ has come, this whole idea of the law, it just isn't sufficient anymore. We have to think about ourselves as family. We have to think of ourselves as being in God's family. Now, if you look at verse 28, Paul's making a very particular statement here. Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. What does this verse mean? Does it mean that when you become a Christian that you have to somehow give up being male? In my case, or female, maybe for some of you, does that mean that you, we become all kind of mixed in this one in-between gen? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we give up our individuality. It doesn't mean that we give up being who we are. What Paul is talking about here is that we all are equal in terms of our status before God. We're all equal when it comes to our status before God. So it means if you're male or female, you have the same status before God. It means if you, in this case, to follow what Paul has said, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you have the same status before God. It means if you're a slave or free, that you have the same status before God. Now, these these verses really, really radical. Because in Paul's day, he's writing to the first century Roman culture. And this is is a, a way that society was structured. You are either, like one of the fundamental ways to understand who you were in society was, are you male or female? Because if you were male, your life was a certain way, and if you were female, your life was another way, and that was very predetermined, and male was a lot higher and more special than to be female in that culture. If you were a Jew, you thought you were way better than the Gentiles. 
To be a Gentile was probably one of the worst insults you could have said to a Jew. The Jews thought they were way superior. So in these, putting these two things together, it's one group that's a lot higher than the other, at least according to what they thought of themselves. You have freed people who thought they were way better than slaves. And what Paul says is, that's an old way of thinking. In the family of God, everyone is equal. Everybody has equal access to God the Father. Everybody has the same status. So whatever way you think about yourself, whatever way society tells you you have to be, whether it's you think you're higher or lower than someone, and the reality is, in God's family, everybody's the same. Everybody's equal. So in Paul's day, they had all of these social divisions, they had all of these inequalities, but thankfully, today, in 21st century America, we have got this all figured out, we are a lot more enlightened, and we don't have all of the same social problems. Okay. Maybe, maybe we have a few. So what would Paul say to our 21st century America? What would this verse say to us? Well, it would say it doesn't matter if you're black or white. Come on. You are equal in the family of God. Mm-hmm. It would say it wouldn't matter if you're male or female. You're equal in the family of God. It wouldn't matter if you're in the 1% or the 99%. Come on. You are equal in the family of God. It doesn't matter if you were born in America or some crazy overseas place like Northern Ireland. No, I don't know about that. Cameron's not sure about this one. <laughs> yeah. We're all equal in the family of God. Doesn't matter if you're white collar or blue collar. Doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter where you go to work in the morning. We're all equal in the family of God. This is really radical news because we like to keep divisions between ourselves. We're really good at causing divisions among ourselves. You know, we see this globally right now with with the refugee crisis that's happening. It really matters what country you're born in. Something people have no control over Did you control where you were born? (laughs) And yet, we see globally, right, just today, to keep this really current, we see that it really matters. You know? And we like to make divisions. And Paul is using this verse and saying, you know what? I'm here to tell you that everybody is equal. And the language he uses to tell us that is the language of family. Where he says we're all equal before God. Now, often, our lives, it won't feel like that. (laughs) It'll feel like all of these inequalities speak so highly to who we are and shape so much of who we are. So it's important that we remember and keep in our minds that we are equal in status when it comes before God, that everyone in the family of God has equal status. In chapter 4, Paul continues with this language of family. And he uses another interesting picture that people would have been very familiar with in their day. So if you were 
um, a family in Paul's day when he's writing, it would have been very common for there to be a guardian who would have looked after children as they grew up. And that guardian would have made sure that the kids, you know, that they were where they needed to be at the right time, that they were looked after, that they were safe, that they were generally being raised the right way. So Paul is saying here that, you know, for a long time, there were guard, there was this idea of spiritually that there was a guardian watching over people. That even though there was a sense in which that child was supposed to grow up, because it had this guardian, it never made its own choices, and it never had freedom to go where it wanted or to do anything. So it's really similar to the language we had before with the law. And Paul is saying here, for a long time, it's as if, you know, spiritually, we were still waiting to mature, still waiting to grow up. You know, under those former days, we would not have been able to mature. We would not have been able to grow up. So Paul, again, is using this language of family. And what he's saying is that through Christ, we have been given the ability to fully come into what it means to be a son and a daughter. He said prior to Christ, we are completely incapable of coming to the point where we're a full son or daughter. So why is that so important? Paul tells us as we go through a few ways that this is important, but one of the main ways is that through this access to God the Father, one of the main points is now that we're a child of God, we have access to the inheritance of God. He said if you're not a fully mature son or daughter, you don't have access to the inheritance of God. You might have the label of a son or a daughter, but if you still have that guardian watching over you, if you're not mature enough to actually take hold of that inheritance, it's as if you are a slave in the household. So Paul's using a lot of rich imagery here, but the main thing to think about this morning is that we're equal in status in the family of God, And that because we now have this label of a child of God, we have access to the inheritance that God provides. And if we don't connect this idea of being a child of God and having access to God, then we won't understand the riches that he has in store for us. Without this language of family, it's really hard for us to get our minds around the fact that we have a really rich inheritance in God. And Paul's really clear that there's a lot of riches of inheritance that God has for us. And that comes across in many, many different ways. But one of the ways that I want to talk about this morning is the idea of the spirit of reconciliation. Elsewhere, John's Gospel We see this first. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. It's a huge part of this whole idea of being in God's family. Mm -hmm. That when you're in the family of God, there's a security, there's a permanence to being in the family of God that allows us to live our lives in confidence. Confident that we have access to God the Father. Confident that we have access to all that He has to offer us. 
there's a permanence to being in the family. There's a permanence to being in God's family. There's a goodness to being in God's family. Now, the fact that each of us are in God's family means that we have been reconciled to God. It means that we have been reconciled to each other in relationship. Once we were far off from God, Scripture says, but we have been brought near, we have brought, been brought into the family of God. We have benefited from God's grace, from His mercy. We have been reconciled to Him. And as we live our lives in the family of God, one of the things that we can access as an inheritance is this ability then, as we live our lives as Christians, to see the reconciliation of God move through us into the lives of others. So we have each been brought into the family of God as Christians through faith in Jesus Christ. We have received and been on the receiving end of His grace, His mercy, His reconciliation. And as we live our lives, we're called to therefore take that spirit of reconciliation and see it made manifest, see it outworked in our lives wherever we go. Now that could be in our earthly families that we see this spirit of reconciliation where there's discord and tension, that we are called to be ones who bring in peace and reconciliation. It could be in our workplaces. It could be in our local community. There's lots of ways that this could manifest itself. Lots of ways that we could live this out. The church has always been this type of place where people who are far apart and divided and enemies even with each other are brought together in the family of God. I want to talk about just a few examples as we move through the message this morning. When Jesus is... Uh, leaving his earthly ministry, he's about to ascend to heaven. He meets with his disciples. So remember, Jesus has uh, risen from the grave. The disciples have heard the news. And what's their response? Instead of going out to look for Jesus, they hunkered on inside a room because <laughs> they're terrified. And they're waiting. They don't even know what they're waiting for. They're just hiding. And Jesus comes in and he says, Peace be with you, which is appropriate because they probably were terrified that Jesus had come. And what does Jesus do? He, he, he begins to minister to them and say, I want you to go out and to br- bring forgiveness, bring reconciliation to people wherever you go. When did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit? Did they receive the Holy Spirit in Acts when, this, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost? Well, yeah, they received the Holy Spirit then. But his closest disciples received the Holy Spirit We read in John chapter 20 when Jesus breathed on them. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's just a couple of verses in John's gospel. And Jesus breathed on them and then he says, essentially, go and forgive people. Wow, that's amazing. Jesus ties the receiving of the Holy Spirit with the ability to see people's lives forgiven And we can then take that a step further and infer that there would be reconciliation that happens between people and God and people and each other. So, what's the connection? Jesus says to the disciples, receive the Spirit and go. And as you go, there's this whole thing of forgiveness and reconciliation that should be evident. So, Jesus breathing on the disciples 
One of the ways when you read scripture, when you read an incident and you think, is there anywhere else in the Bible that that seems, I've seen this picture before, or I've seen something similar to this? It's one way you can tie connections in scripture. Jesus, imagine Jesus breathes on the disciples. Does that picture anything, spark anything in your mind? In Genesis, exactly, in Genesis chapter 1 and then chapter 2, we read this creation account. And God creates the birds and the animals and the stars and the sun and the moon. It creates everything. What's the pinnacle of creation? Us, right? Humanity. And do you remember how God creates Adam? They have this image of God gets his fingers into the dust and he creates and he creates and he creates this beautiful statue, man-sized statue of dust. And this pillar of dust is before God. And what's the only problem with this pillar of dust that God has created? It's dead. There's no life in this pillar of dust. Until what happens? God, that image, God comes right up to that pillar of dust and breathes into it. And it breathes the breath of God, the life of God into that pillar of dust. And it becomes Adam. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet Ezekiel is given a vision. He's staring at a valley of dry bones. And what does this valley of dry bones look like? Looks like a valley full of dry bones. No life. No muscle. No tissue. No blood pumping. No activity. Absolutely dead. What does God say to Ezekiel? Why don't you prophesy to these dry bones? And Ezekiel, I don't know, would you have just gone along with that plan? Ezekiel <laughs> steps out in faith. All right, I'll prophesy to these dry bones. And what happens? Life comes into the dry bones. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 6, God says, I will put breath in you. You will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So, three places in Scripture we have this idea very directly of the breath of God, the wind of God coming yeah. and bringing life to dead places. So when we're called to go out and to bring this ministry of reconciliation, this ministry of forgiveness, often the places that God wants us to do it are places where it seems that all is lost, yeah. that there's no life and that everything is dead. Maybe it's dusty, maybe it's dry. And maybe God says, I want you to bring reconciliation. I want you to bring life into these places. Coming into the family of God means reconciliation. It means forgiveness. It means sins are forgiven. People are reconciled to God. People are reconciled to each other. God says, I want you to do that. And if you're going to do that, it means going to some dry places, some dusty places, and allowing the breath of God, the spirit of reconciliation, to come and move through you into people's lives. And when we do that, we're inviting people into the family of God and saying, hey, no matter what society tells you, whether you're at the top of society or the bottom of society, you are all one in God's family. Right. All one in God's family. At the very start of the church in Acts chapter 2, 
we see this incredible picture of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the start of the church. What does that look like? The disciples, 120 people are waiting. They're just waiting for God to come. They're praying. They're waiting on what's next. Jesus has gone to heaven and they're waiting for what's next. And the what's next is that the Holy Spirit comes in a mighty way and the church is born. Acts chapter 2, when you read it, goes out of its way to explain how diverse that group of people was. If you read in Acts chapter 2, there's a big festival going on in Jerusalem, uh, the city where all of this took place, and people come from all over the world at that time. They come from all over the world. So Acts chapter 2, there's not a whole lot of space there, but they still take up a lot of room to talk about all the different types of people that were there in this city at that time. So if you think it forward, who were the people that heard the message of the gospel from Peter on the day of Pentecost? It was a whole bunch of people who didn't look the same, they didn't talk the same language, they didn't sound the same, they had different ways of looking at life, they were from different tribes, they were from all different places. So who do you think then consisted of the first group of believers at the end of Acts chapter 2 when it says that they had fellowship together, they had everything in common? When you picture that group of people in your mind, do they all look the same? The reality is they all probably looked pretty different from each other. They were different groups of people drawn from all different parts of the world. And that is the picture of the earliest church. And that's the picture that God wants us to have as we think about what it means to be in the family of God. That he brings all of these diverse people together from lots of different countries, from lots of different people groups, lots of different languages, and calls it the church, and calls it the family of God. What an incredible picture. God is relentless when it comes to bringing very different people together into one family. God is relentless. We see in Revelation, we see that there will be people from every tribe and tongue. We know that God will have his way, and that the gospel will go out to all peoples. You know who the problem, where the problem lies oftentimes? is with us. Because often we say to ourselves, I like to be with people that are like me. Yeah. I like to be with people who get where I'm coming from, who often look like me, talk like me, the whole deal, right? That's just naturally kind of how we're wired. And God says, I have a different vision for what the family of God looks like. That God wants to draw everyone into his family. That his family is a place where we're truly equal in accessing the grace and the mercy of God. Each of us have so radically benefited from God's goodness and his grace that we've been reconciled to him, reconciled to each other. He wants us, just like those earliest Christians, just like those disciples, to see ourselves as people who can bring life to those dead, dusty places wherever we go and to breathe the Holy Spirit of God into situations to bring reconciliation and to invite people into the family of God. So that's our message for this morning, that we have been reconciled to God, equal before Him, full access to the inheritance of God with a mission to go out 
and to invite people into the family of God to experience this forgiveness and reconciliation that we have experienced already as Christians through faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to finish this morning and pray for all of us. Pray into what we've just read together in Scripture as we close our message this morning. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word that it speaks so directly to who we are today in our time and our culture. God, you are a God who wants to reconcile people together, to see forgiveness. God, you have called us to go out into the world, into the places where there are dry bones, where it's nothing but dust, and there, to our vision, there's no life. But God, you call us to speak into those places, yeah. to call life forth. Yeah. Help us, God, to have your vision for, for the ways that can happen. Yes. Help us, God, to invite others into the family of God. And help us, God, to understand our place as sons and daughters with full access to the inheritance of God. Thank you, God, for this beautiful day, your favor, your provision, your blessing, and your love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.